Sinead Campbell, and this is the History of Musical Theatre Podcast Season 3. We are going to be talking about Broadway and the New York City Ballet. But first, let me begin by paying my debts to my audience. I promised in the description of the last episode that I do this because there was a bit of a lag between recording the last episode and it actually getting uploaded, in which time Stephen Sondheim died. The time between recording and uploading took longer than usual for secret reasons. Not secret in a like I'm teasing something fun kind of way, but secret in a personal and none of your business kind of way. But I'd mentioned in the last episode that I was really sad about the death of Oscar Hammerstein and that I'd likely be really sad about the death of Stephen Sondheim. It's a really good thing that I don't believe in manifesting or speaking things into existence because I'd be feeling really guilty about this. What it did bring up for me, though, was the feeling that I'd missed the boat and that there was some kind of window of opportunity that rushed past me without me even knowing and that all my wild dreams that were hard but attainable suddenly became impossible. I mean, one really concrete example is I'm never going to get the chance to work with him on a show and I'm never going to get to interview him for the podcast, which was definitely a hope of mine. The Dance Edit podcast in a recent episode gave a really beautiful tribute. To paraphrase a little, um, it seems really strange to say that a 91-year-old man died before his time, but he didn't seem like someone wrapping up his life. He was writing a show which he'd hoped would make it onto Broadway in the coming years. He'd attended the theatre regularly, for example, seeing the company of company perform, if you'll excuse the double use of the word. I don't know what will become of the already written portions of the show, um, nor do I actually know at the moment the exact cause of death. It's not been released publicly. He is survived by his partner, Jeff Romley. In the days following his death, it was common to hear his lyrics being used as tributes to him, along with the observation that he had given us the words with which to mourn him. I've never actually been in a Sondheim show, but the ones I've seen I've really enjoyed, and I really hope to have the opportunity to perform these iconic works in the future. Um, I'm now going to take a really important recording interlude of probably a day or two before I return to the main programming. This is so that I don't sound like I'm trying to perform the rest of the episode with my complete annotated lyrics of Sondheim on my chest. Um, for you, though, the transition will be almost instantaneous. Ta-da! Less sad sounding and ready to talk about ballet. Ballet is a worldwide art form. From its origins in Europe, it has spread to the farthest corners of the earth. My home country of opposite land, or Australia as it's sometimes known, has a major national company as well as a few state companies. One of these state companies is led by Lee Swin Singh, or Mao's Last Dancer as he actually is often known. He recounts in his memoir of the same title how he grew up in rural China and came to Beijing to study ballet and then ended up in America and finally Australia. There's an account I follow on Instagram, which is a ballet school from Nigeria. They take class outdoors and every video I see of them makes me smile. They are so precious. Different countries, particularly but not exclusively across the Western world, have their own ballet identities even, attached to techniques and repertoire and training. Ballet is pretty much everywhere, but it came from France, from the court of Louis XIV. This podcast will not present a complete history of ballet because it would take forever. The audiobook version of Apollo's Angels, which is a book that actually attempts to do this, takes just under 24 hours to listen to. We don't do those sorts of hours in this show, and besides, it wouldn't cover all the musical theatre stuff I want to talk about. 
I will, however, give you a quick overview of the foundations of ballet. Ballet is seen as a traditionally feminine art form, centred around the ballerinas, but it originally started with a man, Louis XIV of France. He was born in 1638, yes, we're going that far back, and took the throne in 1642, so pretty young, aged 14. Women didn't actually perform as professional dancers until 1681. You know, you're starting early in history where you talk about, oh, this thing didn't even happen until 1681. Gosh. Ballet grew out of the resurgence of Greek philosophy, especially Aristotle's ideas about the perfect form. If there is a perfect form in all things, there must also be a perfect form of the human body, a perfect way to move, and a perfect way to hold one's body. Ballet also had its roots in fencing and equestrian. Both of these were actually hyper-stylized art forms, as well as having military applications. Ballet was seen as the way to move one's body closer to the perfect ideal. In the book Celestial Bodies, How to Look at Ballet, it says, Classical dance was a man's pursuit of real consequence, and the art form took its place among the academies of fencing and equestrian. They were actually housed together. Louis XIV took daily class for 20 years and founded the Royal Academy of Dance in France. (laughs) It rhymes, dance in France. It's not the contemporary British R.A.D., but the French Academy. Ballet was not only an artistic tool, but a political one. He would perform ballets with members of the court, including Le Ballet de Nuit, or Ballet of the Night. Typically, a full-length ballet... Contemporary society, we're talking about two hours, two and a half hours. This one was 13 hours long. It was performed, as the title may suggest, through the night, and led to him getting the name Le Roi Soleil, or the Sun King. This ballet, among others, helped to strengthen his image as a divine ruler. There is actually a French musical called Le Roi Soleil about Louis XIV. It's not really important, but if you want to explore French musicals, it's one that exists. It is time for a massive time jump. Louis XIV may have died in 1715. Oh, I said I wasn't going to talk about death, but I did. I tricked you. (laughs) Hope you didn't get too attached to him. August Vestris was born in 1760. He was born into some challenges, but would go on to be a great dancer, and then probably more importantly, a great teacher. These challenges are firstly, being born illegitimate, and secondly, being born short. He was born in France, and his training was predominantly by his father. That's going to be a bit of a theme in this episode. It wasn't long before he made his professional debut at the age of 12 in La Cinquantaine, probably is how it's said. Compared with the other languages I may attempt in this show, French is more my vibe, but I wouldn't say I was good at it so much as my French is better than my Russian. Le Saint-Catin isn't a full ballet, but a divertissement, so a short ballet. One of his father's ballets was produced the next year, starring August, and it was only a few years later that he joined the Paris Opera Ballet as a soloist, or the proto-version of it. In 1776, two years later, he was promoted to premier danseur, and in two more years, he was promoted to premier sujet de danse. In contemporary terms, those ranks are pretty much good, better, best. He worked in Paris and in London for a bit, 
British Parliament actually held a recess so that they could see him perform, which is insane. He was small, but he had an incredible jump. Short people are often better at jumps. For proof of this, see six foot me attempting Petit Allegro. I'm working on it, but it's not pretty. Though he was loved in London, it's reported that Napoleon wanted him to stay in France and that if people wanted to see him, they'd have to come there. He retired from the company in 1816 and three years later was thrown in debtor's prison. Although, gotta say, retiring at 56 from a, a ballet company is crazy old, especially for a jumper. And especially for a jumper in the pre-sprung floor era. I'm impressed. His later career was as a choreographer and a teacher. As the former, he was unremarkable. Yes, that is the word the Oxford reference uses to describe his work, which is brutal. As a teacher, he was more successful. He taught Marie Taglioni. She was primarily taught by her father. The theme is back. And dance a minuet with her when he was 75. Most 21st century dance careers are finished by 40. He also taught August Bournemouth, which is spelt differently, Fanny Elsa, Marius Petipa, and others. Remember some of those names I brought up, because they're coming back. Carlo Blasis, born in 1797, did a lot towards codifying ballet. Blasis danced in a number of ballet companies across Europe, quite major ones like the Paris Opera, La Scala, and the King's Theatre in London. It was in London that he suffered an injury which forced an early retirement. No retiring at 56 for Blasis. He was appointed as the director of the ballet school at La Scala, and from there he focused his work on teaching and writing. In 1820, he wrote Traite élémentaire théorétique et pratique de la de l'art de la danse getting really good use out of my few units of university french it means elementary treatise on the theory and practice of the art of dancing people used to write books with insanely long titles to be fair this is the history of musical theater podcast broadway in the new york city ballet episode one that's not a short title but guys come me some slack he's also credited with inventing the position of attitude which is an arabesque with a bent working leg. Or if you don't know what an arabesque is, you're standing on a straight leg with your other leg lifted up behind you and bent. Both legs are turned out. It doesn't sound like a huge innovation, but it is a really common position. His other creation was spotting. When a dancer is turning, they focus their eyes on a specific place or spot. As your body turns, your head stays focused on the spot. Because most people can't turn their head completely around 360 degrees multiple times. I know inflexible. As your body moves, you have to turn your head as quickly as possible, right back and refocus on the same spot. It helps you not get as dizzy, which is good, and also stay up straighter and not move around so much on the stage as you turn. It's a really useful technique, and yeah, I'm bad at it, but it's helpful. (laughs) When we think of ballet, many of us think of a ballerina in a soft, white, romantic tutu Standing on the tips of her toes, she's a fairy or a spirit of some kind. The ballerina you're thinking of, complete with a tiny set of wings, is Marie Taglioni. Without Marie Taglioni and her father, Filippo Taglioni, it's very likely that ballet would have developed, or developed, if you will, into something completely different to what we have today. Marie was born in 1804 in Sweden and died in 1884 in France, but she was Italian and her training came primarily from her father. 
Before Taglioni, dancing, including ballet, was seen as provocative and inappropriate, especially for women. Filippo wanted something else for his daughter. As much of her training was under his tutelage, he also did a lot to create her image. She wore bloomers under a long romantic tutu, and when she was performed, it was advertised that the show was appropriate for the whole family, including women and children. Even at the height of her kick, you wouldn't see her knees. Shock horror. I I know I personally use hyper-realistic fake knees when I perform, for the sake of modesty. In 1831, when Mary was 27, she performed in the Ballet of the Nuns, where she played the corrupt head nun. I don't believe we have any of this choreography recorded and available anymore, but that's a pretty weird topic for a ballet. It feels like a weird topic for a ballet, and I'm sure that the reason for that is actually that after Taglioni, the topics of ballets changed so much to be about fairies and sprites and women standing on the tips of their toes. She basically recreated the genre to exclude her first majorly successful work. The ballet was choreographed by her father and lit by gaslight, which was a pretty new innovation at the time. But the next year came an even bigger success. La Sylphide. It was created again by her father, specifically designed for Marie to dance the principal role. The ballet still exists, or at least the story does, but the version that is predominantly performed is the 1836 August Bournemville choreography. Marie danced the role of a sylph in a long white tutu and tiny fairy wings which came off in one of the scenes. As she danced, she would rise for brief moments to the tips of her toes, on point. There were actually a number of dancers at the same time working towards this extreme range, but Taglioni is often recognised as the first. During the ballet, she was also flown from wires, invisible to the audience high above the stage. During her life, Taglioni only had one real rival for greatest ballerina in the world, and that was Fanny Elsler. But before we talk about her, let's double back to August Bournonville. August Bournonville is one of those guys who gets a ballet technique named after him. Yeah, the Bournonville technique. Shocking name, I know. He was trained by his father. Shocking, again, and then by August Vestris. He performed from about the age of eight, which means he's winning so far. His father, Antoine Bournonville, had a career as both a choreographer and a dancer with the Royal Danish Ballet, which he would also serve as the director for. From Denmark, Bournonville, August, not Antoine, went to Paris and studied there. He then joined the Paris Opera Ballet, or whatever proto-version of it existed. It seemed like he was going to have a really stable career there, but he ended up returning to Denmark. He would go on to be the ballet master and then the company director there. Bournemville's style is known for its understated nature. The theatres were small and the audience was close, so Port-au-Bras was small. Port-au-Bras is a French term meaning carriage of the arms, or in simpler terms, whatever the hell you're doing with your arms. The style was less showy than many other ballet styles and is still the Royal Danish Ballet's primary style. His ballet, Le Conservatoire, shows ballet classes at the time and is the only surviving ballet of that era to do so. His most famous ballet is probably Flower Festival at Gonzago, but the William Tell part de is fantastic and I absolutely recommend it to anyone who wants to get a little bit of a sense of the Bournemville style. Now we've doubled, doubled back. Fanny Elsler grew up in an artistic family. Her father worked for a composer. They weren't a particularly wealthy family, but they had a lot of kids. 
For financial reasons, and this is hilarious to me, they sent Fanny and her sister Teresa away to the Imperial Ballet School. What is this? Opposite day? Growing up in Australia, ballet school isn't something people do to save money. I'm pretty sure any American or English audience member would agree with me. Anyone from those advanced westernized democracies? Air quotes around that because this is not a poli-sci podcast. Australian dancer Claudia Dean spoke about her parents remortgaging their house in order to pay for her to study at the Royal Ballet School. But 1800s Austria is different from contemporary English-Australia-America. Real country. There's a lot of things about Fanny Elsa's story that sound really strange to contemporary audiences. From the Imperial Ballet School, she went on to Naples at the age of 16 to continue her studies. There she had an affair with the Prince of Salerno and became pregnant by him. At 16. They couldn't marry because he was royal and she was, you know, someone whose parents sent her to ballet school because food was too expensive. From Naples, she went to Vienna, where she gave up her son, and then to Berlin, where she'd been invited to perform. There she met another man and then got pregnant again, this time at 19. She also gave this child up. With two children born before the age of 20, she was ready to begin her career proper. Throughout ballet history, you can't take two steps without finding a comparison to Marie Taglioni. Anna Pavlova was notable, but it happens a lot. This dancer or that dancer is always being called the next Marie Taglioni. I wanted to give Fanny Elsa her dues and give you two dances for comparison. In terms of personal life, especially Elsa's early years, I can think of no one better than Isadora Duncan. In terms of dance style, I see extremely strong comparisons with Agnes DeMille. Really, any great character dancer can be compared with Fanny Elsa. After refocusing her career, you know, after baby number two, she joined the Paris Opera Ballet. At the time, Marie Taglioni was the prima ballerina there, but the company director thought she was a bit full of herself and a bit too demanding. Whether or not this is true, I can't say, but the director felt that way. He wanted to bring in someone to compete with her, and that someone was Elsa. In 1836, she found her La Sylphide in the ballet Le Diable Boiteux, specifically her performance of the Spanish dance Cachucha. Fanny Elsa became known as a character dancer. If you're not familiar with the term, I'm going to steal a brief definition and history from Maria Fay's My Approach to Character Dance. Folk dance is a cultural tradition that every nation, tribe, and ethnic minority on the globe has from ancient times. It was through dancing that people found an easy and natural way to capture the attention of the opposite gender, to celebrate special occasions of their life, to ask the gods at religious occasions for blessings, and so on. It was also a good way to have a good time. As social conditions became more sophisticated, people made their dancing richer and more colourful with various occupational dances, like herd dance, shepherd dance, cowboy dance, hunter dance, soldier dance. All of these types of folkloric dances, though, in style completely different from each other, in each community, have in common that they came into existence as a natural result of people's everyday life. Ballet masters inserted national dances into their ballet choreographies. They were choreographed for professionals with an aim to entertain and impress an elite audience. These dances are not just plain copies of amateur self-entertaining national dances. They were created for and danced by professional artists on stage. Long quote, but hopefully that helps. Character dance, specifically her adapted version of the Cachucha, had huge port-de-bras and lots of torso movement. 
She did actually attempt La Sylphide once, and it was not her thing. Whereas Marie was famous for her lightness, Fanny's quick footwork was what was most impressive about her. People actually made porcelain models of her feet, which is really weird. Not super, like, historically important or anything, but just, you know, weird. The Paris Opera Ballet, like many companies still do, took the summer off, and it wasn't uncommon for dancers to tour to other countries and cities to perform during this time. This same kind of summer break would prove instrumental in the founding of the Ballet Russe. She was involved with a count, you know, like you do, and he was going to be away, so he helped her organize a tour for the summer in the US. She went to three cities, New York, Philadelphia, and New Orleans with a small company of dancers she'd hired at the beginning of her trip. She danced a variety of Paris Opera Ballet repertoire along with her famous Cachucha. She would go back year after year and eventually broke her contract with the Paris Opera in order to stay longer in the States. She returned to Europe shortly before her death, but for much of her career she worked in the US where there was really a lot of money to be made. Fanny also was insanely popular when she came to the US. Audiences were stunned by this new, impressive dance form, but because there wasn't the same training available there, or really any companies, it didn't spark a ballet legacy so much as introduce it to an audience. It's confession time. When people talked about the petit pas style, I thought they meant petit, as in small, pas, as in step. There is actually a term that's used to describe this, and it's terre à terre, or ground to ground. A little French is dangerous. Petit pas actually refers to Marius Petit pas. He was born in 1818, and a lot of his training also came from his father, all my dad did was love and support me and encourage me to use my skills in my own projects. Not a single ballet class. Disappointed. Petit pas beat Vestris to the punch when it came to performing. Waiting until you're 12? At that point, you're basically ancient. Marius made his stage debut with his father's company at the age of nine. He had an extensive performance career across the world. France, Belgium, Spain, and the US. One of the really notable things about the American tours of various European performers is that they may have introduced ballet to audiences, but they didn't establish a legacy. As we talk about these European performers, the same names come up again and again and again. Because one generation trained the next, and then trained the next, and trained the next both as individuals and within established state-funded schools. There wasn't really a system of training for ballet dancers in the US. There were a few isolated dancers who came out of American dance schools, but there weren't companies or feeder schools. Back to Petit Park. His first full-length ballet he choreographed was A Regency Marriage for the Marinsky Theatre in Russia in 1858. Most of his choreographing was in Russia, but he never actually learnt Russian properly. It was an era and a place where people spoke lots of languages, so the Russian ballet just had to deal with his French. The ballets he created have become a really big part of the standard ballet repertoire, especially in Russia. La Bayadere, Giselle, Raimonda, Don Quixote, and Les Corsaires are some examples of this. 
Even if you don't watch Marius Petipas' specific versions of the ballets, you've still seen his influence. From the Royal Ballet's website, Petipas' ballets were grand spectacles that made magnificent use of the court ballet and places the lead ballerina centre stage. His theatre and school became a model for all ballet around the globe throughout the 20th century. He also had some significant collaborations with our next figure. Much of the work of Marius Petipa, and certainly his most famous works, at least outside of Russia, would not have been possible without the work of one Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky, or Peter, if you're anglicizing it. Look, I'm just going to call him Tchaikovsky because my Russian isn't really good. Shocking, I know. Tchaikovsky was the child of French émigrés, something kind of in common with Petipa. From a young age, he loved music, and his first recorded composition was at around the age of four. Just showing off, are we? Russia didn't really have the kind of training system for musicians, so his early education was designed to prepare him for the civil service. It wasn't until he was 17 that he really began to study music seriously. His early career isn't really why we're talking about him. He actually only wrote three works that are relevant to this episode. Swan Lake, The Sleeping Beauty, and The Nutcracker. If you're an aficionado of Barbie films, you probably are familiar with the music of two of those, and if you like Disney films, you may have heard some of the music from the third. Actually, if you've made it this far into the episode, you've almost certainly heard two clips from these ballets, and we'll be hearing the third one. Shout out to my younger sister Violet, who recorded those on the cello for me. Tchaikovsky wrote operas and symphonies, but his ballet music was really significant. In 1876, Swan Lake premiered. It was actually dropped from the repertory almost immediately, but that was more owing to the staging and the choreography. From what I can tell, this version wasn't Petipa's one, and his later version would go on to be the standard. 1890 saw the debut of The Sleeping Beauty, and 1892 saw the debut of The Nutcracker. Marius Petipa choreographed the former, and his assistant choreographed the latter. Between these two things, in 1891, Tchaikovsky went to America when he was invited to the opening of Carnegie Hall. The significant thing about Tchaikovsky's ballet music was that he treated it with the same artistic importance as symphonic works, and he was pretty much the first to do so. The idea that music is important to ballet shouldn't be shocking, but it was a little bit. He died reasonably young, the year after the Nutcracker, while he was only in his 50s. The historical consensus among people who like to, I don't know, look at the evidence, is that he died of cholera. There was an outbreak local to him at the time he died, and he seems to have exhibited signs of the illness. Despite this very reasonable response, there has been an enduring story that he committed suicide. He was troubled throughout his life, but there isn't actually any evidence of this. It turns out that normal, boring, reasonable explanations are never as fun as just straight-up wild conjecture. Jumping forward a touch, during the Soviet era, his music was highly regarded, in the kind of way that the Soviets regarded things. Critiquing him could put you in some legal trouble. They also conveniently ignored the fact that he had throughout his life same-sex attractions. I'm using that term because he was married to a woman and never seemed comfortable with the feeling, so I wanted to use the term with the fewest additional connotations. Not important, but interesting. I learned this Soviet fact while I was watching Chernobyl. 
I often will put things on while I write. During the 20th century, his work was under some criticism because of his sexuality. It was interesting that these ballets that seem so innocuous today were seen in such a scandalous light. There are some contentious issues around Tchaikovsky's ballets, particularly The Nutcracker, um, which I'm hoping to be able to address later, probably in an interview. But given that I've not contacted the person I want to speak to, I'm not going to say any more about that. Despite that his work is enduring and comes up again and again and again over the course of this history. In the Who Made Their Stage Debut the Earliest competition, Enrico Cicchetti wins hands down. He was born in a dressing room and his debut was made in his father's arms. Just give him the prize. Despite his parents being performers, they wanted him to go into law or business, but he didn't do that. His training was firmly in the Carlo Blasis school, although not directly under Blasis. His earliest training was under his father, a Blasis alum, and later with Giovanni Lepri, Cesare Coppini, and Filippo Taglioni, father of Marie Taglioni. His performance proper began in his later teen years, before a star-making turn at the age of 20 at La Scala. Later in life, he would return to the same theatre to direct the ballet company there. He performed around Europe before moving to St. Petersburg, where he was given the triple role of teacher at the Imperial Ballet School, as well as premier danseur and maître de ballet at the Marinsky. The latter two roles translate to principal dancer and ballet master. Basically, he danced important roles and he taught ballet. In his dancing, he was well reputed. He created two notable roles in Marius Petipa's The Sleeping Beauty, Carabos and The Bluebird. If you don't know the ballet The Sleeping Beauty, those might be meaningless terms to you, but Carabos is essentially the evil queen role, the evil fairy, and The Bluebird comes in the third act with the mixture of divertisements. If you've heard Cicchetti's name before, it's likely because of the technique he created. Like August Bournemville before him and George Balanchine after him, he created a unique version of ballet technique. Agnes DeMille describes one aspect of it in her book, Speak to Me, Dance With Me. For every day of the week, there is a special set of exercises, and Tuesdays may not be given on Friday. The children memorize the schedule like multiplication tables. Mind you, there is no progressive logic to them. They are set in an arbitrary sequence. There is a certain amount of ennui in the routines, but they are designed to build thighs and ankles that would support the Brooklyn Bridge and vary the tensions and stretchings so no muscles bulge unduly and the body relaxes and recovers between stresses. Now, John, wraps out Mim, what is the adage for Wednesday? God help him if he names Thursdays. The Cicchetti technique is also notable for its specific port bras or arm positions, and it's extremely challenging adages, which are slower dances usually with extensions or leg lifts. The format of this episode is changing a little bit from now. I'm going to leave Cicchetti there because the rest of his story belongs in the next episode, along with the second part of all of the rest of the stories. He would go on to join the Ballet Russe, which is basically the precursor to most of the major ballet companies not in Europe. That is not an exaggeration, that is legitimately what the Ballet Russe did. Born in 1880, Mikhail Fokin is another choreographer of importance to this story. 
The American Ballet Theatre biography calls him choreographer, dancer, teacher, and reformer of ballet. Ooh, fancy. He was the son of a businessman, not a dancer, and studied under people who weren't his father. This is exciting. There's hope for those of us whose fathers can't tell apart a Shah from a Soda Shah. He was trained at the Imperial Ballet School. Okay, maybe there isn't hope for those of us who weren't picked as children to study at an elite Russian ballet school. I may have gotten ahead of myself. He also studied under Tamara Kasavina's father. Tamara Kasavina was a hugely successful ballerina and will be important next episode. After graduating, Fokin pulled a Pavlova and went straight into dancing soloist roles. That joke will make sense soon. Maybe Pavlova pulled a Fokin? Anyway. He was reasonably successful as a dancer, but really made his name as a teacher and choreographer. And a dance reformer. Thanks, ABT. Where have we heard that one before? He started teaching the intermediate class in 1902 and the advanced class in 1905. It was the same year that he made his choreographic debut, creating Assis Egality. It was the student performance at the Imperial Ballet School and featured Anna Pavlova, the next person we're going to be talking about, in a featured role even though she wasn't graduating that year. It also had Vaslav Nijinsky in it in an extremely acrobatic solo. He's going to come up next episode. He wanted the ballet to be performed in bare feet, but because the students needed to show off their point work, that idea didn't have legs. It's in my contract to include at least one absolutely terrible pun in each episode. I'm not sorry. The same year, he created The Dying Swan. It's the solo performance that made Anna Pavlova famous as she toured it around the US. It might seem like the variation is pulled directly from Swan Lake, but it actually isn't. The ballet was created for a charity gala. The next year, Mikhail created Le Vigue and A Midsummer Night's Dream, again for student and charity events. In 1907, he choreographed Le Papillon d'Amide, or The Butterfly of Something, or Plays, for the Imperial Ballet Theatre, featuring Pavlova, Nijinsky, and Fokin himself in the principal roles. His final pre-Diaglev work, was Chopinina. Chopinina. Definitely the title. Which was an earlier version of what would go on to become Les Sylphides. If you've listened to season one or heard much at all about ballet history, then you will have heard of Anna Pavlova. I mean, I mentioned her 806 times in the last section. She inspired countless people to pursue a career in dance, even if there really wasn't one there to be pursued. Like, there really wasn't in America when she toured. Anna Pavlova began her dancing career in the opposite world. Her mother took her at the age of eight to see The Sleeping Beauty with the Russian Ballet, and from that evening, she knew what she wanted to do. How many people felt when they saw The Dying Swan. It was actually also what her father wanted her to do. He'd been working his way up in the ushering scene and hoped to get his children onto the stage. That's another thing that seems odd to contemporary listeners. A stable career on the stage. Not a real thing. But it was in Russia. She joined the Imperial Ballet School at the age of 10, in spite of her ill health in her youth. Training at the Imperial Ballet is no joke. But she didn't seem to find it too onerous. She loved being there. She ended up performing throughout her time at the school. She performed for the Emperor and Empress of Russia, and... This is a perhaps apocryphal story. After a performance, she and the other children met the royals. The emperor gave one of the children a kiss, and Pavlova started crying because she wanted a kiss from the emperor. She did get one. 
At the school, she was trained under Enrico Cicchetti and tried to model herself after Marie Taglioni. Taglioni died in 1884 when Pavlova was an infant, but she read everything she could about her. She'll later be hailed as the next incarnation of Taglioni. Pavlova had the opportunity to perform soloist roles even before her graduating year, and was accepted straight into the company, not in the rank of corps, but of Corfi, which is essentially a soloist. You know, pulling a fulking. I told you it would be funny. I'm going to leave Anna there, and we'll come back to her next episode. Now it is time to meet the man of the hour, or, or the season? Georgi Melontovich Balanchinevides, or George Balanchine. His original name will probably make one more passing appearance in episode three, and then never again. At the New York City Ballet, he was often called Mr. B, which is much easier for me to say. He studied at the Imperial Ballet School, like so many of the people we've discussed today. He started there at the age of nine and joined the company upon graduation. One thing that would set Balanchine apart was his understanding of music. He began playing the piano years before he began dancing, at the age of five. While he danced at the State Theatre of Opera and Ballet, formerly the Marinsky, his music studies continued at the Petrograd Conservatory of Music. Mr. B began choreographing young. He actually had about 90 ballets and small works which were created before the first Balanchine Ballet, which we actually have now, which is Apollo. But I'll get to that next episode. If you know a little more about ballet history, you might know someone I've missed. I'm coming back to them, if they're Serge Diaghilev or a handful of other dancers who worked with the Ballet Russe. Otherwise, I'm probably not. Like I said at the beginning, this isn't a complete history. This is a crash course. Next week, we have an interview with Jojo Newark from the Adult Ballet Collective, who is honestly one of the world's most positive people and a fantastic ballet teacher. And the week after that, we are going to go through the exciting and somewhat convoluted history of the Ballet Russe. Until then, keep dancing. <laughs>